Good morning. morning. Greetings in the name of the Lord. Like you heard, we've been giving some testimonies. Um, Dennis Herzler was telling me this last week. He said, you know, we should call it life stories. Uh, There was some confusion, you know, and we would ask each person, would you give your testimony? And some people thought, well, that's just when they first met the Lord. But the goal was to share how the Lord's led us through our lives. And um, it's, I've been enjoying hearing each one. It's different perspectives, different personalities, the way the Lord has met each one. Um, some are more logical, some are more uh, emotional, and it's neat. It's neat to hear how the Lord has led. Um, so I'm going to endeavor to give my testimony after watching Brother Mike and all the other brothers struggle through and try to cram it all into one week. I just said, okay, Brother Roger, can I just have two weeks? I just don't know how I can do it in one week. So anyway... Um, I think this was originally inspired by our brother Conrad. He was, I was over at his house. They invited us over for a supper one evening. And he said, you know, our children need to hear the testimonies of, of our people. You know, we need to be, they need to be inspired by how the Lord has worked in their lives, not just doctrine, but how the Lord has, how the Lord has woken people up and walked them through their lives. And so that birthed a little idea in my head. And, um, here we are. So, it's interesting this morning, our uh, first hour, we talked, as Brother Bob brought up, a lot about Baptist, and um, as many of you know, that is my upbringing and my past, so you're probably going to hear a lot of that, and I will apologize right now if there's something that you agree, or maybe I step on your toes, this is a precious doctrine to you, you know, this is just what the Lord taught me. I might stand before the Lord someday and think, you know, I was that was all wrong, you know, but this is how the Lord's led me, and the things he's opened my eyes to, and and uh, I thank him for it. So um, just a quick synopsis of my life, I would say a 40,000 foot view from the plane. Um, the Lord took me from out of religious hypocrisy, I would say. Um, I was a guy who, you know, went to church on Sundays and I guess you could explain it. I worked hard and I played hard and, and went to church when, when it was... Uh, time to have church service, whether it was Sunday morning or Wednesday night or Sunday night. But there wasn't much relationship with the Lord. Um, There wasn't much seeking him during the week. And then the Lord led me into realizing that he was somebody to be feared, somebody to be reckoned with, somebody to be obeyed. And then from there, he took me into realizing that I can't obey without his power and his strength and without daily dying to self. So that's a real quick, now I'll go into the details. (laughs) Um, As you know, I tend to have a, uh, I I tend to be drawn towards facts, teaching, uh, doctrine, logic, that's my personality. So as I put this together, I realized, wow, the Lord's, I can see over and over, you're going to hear many things the Lord brought up for doctrine uh, to wake me up. I was born... Before I say that, I want to say, this morning I woke up and a song came to my heart. Um, I could even hear Brother Mike singing it. I don't know why, but <laughs> um, this, my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. Um, you know, it is him who woke me up and it is him who has led all this time. I was born in a big town, uh, this, the town of San Diego, uh, border town, California, um, I was born into a little Baptist church that my parents had been part of years before that I had ever been born. 
My great-grandpa was a Baptist preacher, a little church called Grace Baptist Church. In fact, I heard that he was a circuit rider preacher. That would that have been interesting to read some of those history about him going from church to church when he was younger on a horse. Maybe they used maybe they used cars. I don't know. But um, anyway, he I was born into that church ever since I can remember. We you know we had Sunday morning church, and I always remember going to the back. There was always a little old lady who had a little can of of gum, and after every meeting, you know. We all jed back to the back. She'd open a little can. We'd all get our gum, whether you know it's juicy fruit or you know all those flavors. And I remember the good memories of that. Around the age of five, my mom left my dad, and that was really traumatic for me. Um, you know, parents, your children can remember. I can remember back tr- looking at myself in the mirror and realizing how do I blink my eyes. I can remember even the first steps I took. I know that's young, but I can have that memory. I also have the memory of my parents fighting. And I remember standing there the day my mom left and watched her drive off. That was really traumatic and hard. I was five years old. Um, as I, about two years later, my dad remarried. And um, the courts decided since my mom had left, all of you know my mom, most of you do, my mom, Ina, she actually lives here. She was the one that left and the courts decided that she was unfit, so they allowed me to stay with my dad, and I would visit my mom on the weekends. <clears throat> Around the age of eight, I i don't remember exactly how it went, but I said the prayer to ask the Lord into my heart to become a Christian. Um, I don't remember anything amazing changing in my heart. I just remember feeling like I wanted to go to heaven, and I didn't want to go to hell. And so I said the prayer and went on with my life. <clears throat> we were a very faithful family. We were at the church whenever the doors were opened. <clears throat> Around the years of uh, age of 12, my parents started becoming concerned with what they saw in the public schools, and they put me into homeschool. So they would have been some early pioneers of homeschool. Now, this would be my dad with, uh, you might call her my stepmom, the lady he married. And so she began to homeschool me. Uh, she was concerned with what they saw. And at the same time, they they were concerned with the church we were in. It was going liberal, you may say. They were accepting a lot of the new contemporary Christian songs. And just the, the culture there wasn't healthy. So they moved to a little church down the road called Harvison Canyon uh, Bible Church. And this would have been the church I met. My wife, Stephanie, her dad was the pastor there. I was about 14 years old. Stephanie was a tomboy. The first time I met her, or, or maybe the second, we were out, and she thought she was going to race me. I thought, who is this girl? She takes off. Well, sorry, she doesn't take off her shoes. She already had her shoes off. And she races me and takes off down the road on this dirt road and somehow beat me, who you know was the guy with shoes on. So she was very adept to um, rugged culture out where she lived. Around 17, we began dating, and at 19, we got married got married pretty young. Like I said earlier, we worked and played and we went to church. We played hard. Um, We used to go out and water ski and snow ski and um, just whatever we could. I've told this story before about the boat where we were out once and I used to love to jump waves. It was so much fun. And I just about killed Stephanie um, and the dog. We were we were out in the bay in San Diego, and we were going out, 
and I'd been jumping off the backsides uh, of the boat wakes, and I'd seen, we were going out the bay into the main ocean with my little, uh, well, it wasn't little, it was like 17-foot um, ski boat, fiberglass. And I look over to the right where the bay comes out into the ocean, and there's jet skis jumping real waves. And I thought, that looks like a lot of fun. <laughs> and so I endeavored to take my my fiberglass, hard fiberglass boat and jump the wave. And I didn't realize that waves are like this. Um, there's a there's a drop off on the backside, and as we, were, I also didn't realize waves move. And so as I was coming, you know, to get to that wave, it wasn't staying steady like the back of a boat. Um, the, the current coming off the back of a boat, it was coming towards me. So it was about ready to crest over us, and I didn't know what to do. So I just gave it all I got to get through it, and I punched right through that wave. Came out the other side. The engine came out, and we came down. Water was all into the boat. We just about capsized that boat. That's the kind of fun I uh, like to have. Maybe you see that in my boys sometimes. Um, <laughs> I got a big laugh for that one. <laughs> oh, I like to blow things up I have here. I used to go out and take five-gallon propane tank out in the desert and shoot at it and blow it up. That was, yeah. Like I said, we played hard. We also were very faithful to our church. We were there every Sunday. Um, we got involved with uh, one church we went to was they had no pianist. They needed a pianist and they needed a song leader. They would just, they would sing their songs to a tape. They would play the hymns. So Stephanie came and she played the songs and I led the I led the songs and and it was good. About the age of twenty one, we moved up to Montana. I was concerned about Y two K. Anybody remember that phenomenon? Yes. Well, we I, I wasn't I wasn't too you know I wasn't experienced yet in conspiracy theories and. So I bought that one, and we moved to Montana. We built a log home, peeled all the logs, you know, bought tons of gasoline and kerosene and everything we could think of bleach and and stored it all up so that when that Y2K moment came, we would we would be surviving. And, of course, it came and went, and nothing ever happened, which was I didn't know if I should be discouraged or not. But, <laughs> but we joined a little church there, and... Um, we helped teach, we led songs, we helped even preach when the pastor would go out of town, and uh, it was good. It was about three years of just serving in this little church, and then one day, the pastor came to me and he said, Jeremy, uh, and I was uh, 21, I probably would have been about 23 at this time, he came to me and he said, uh, Jeremy, I'm leaving, and um, you are in charge. I was only 23, and this pastor was just leaving in two weeks and saying, you can you can lead out in this church. I had never done this before. You know, all of a sudden I need to preach every service, lead songs. I even looked up Robert's rule of order to figure out how to run business meetings. It was very interesting. <clears throat> and during that time, we had to, I, I was supposed to try to find a pastor. I mean, can you imagine a 20, a 23-year-old trying to find a pastor? Um, and I was pretty young and foolish. And but yet that was where we were, and so we we began to look for this pastor, and we we tried to find, had different people come, interview them, talk to them, and this one man I um, felt he preached well. I I thought he was a good man, and and so we I, I was concerned he might have been a, what is called a Baptist brighter. There's within the Baptist culture there are a group of them that believe only they are the bride of Christ. And so I was concerned he went, but he assured me he wasn't. And so we we actually had him come and become the pastor. 
during that period, it was uh, after he started, he told me, he said, Jeremy, um, we're going to have about a honeymoon period for about a year. And after this, things are going to get serious and people are going to need to move on if they don't agree with what we teach. And, and sure enough, that's what happened. After about a year, it got messy. It got, uh, things were happening that weren't right. And, um, and I was starting to have concerns. I was starting to wonder about all these things I was hearing. Like I said, one of the things that were taught was that the Baptists were the bride. And not only that, but that there was no such thing as a universal church that only the local church was the body of Christ. Each local church was the body of Christ. And I began to look at my Bible and read and think, I did not see that in Scripture. I see there is a church. Yes, there's the church of Ephesus and the church of Corinth, but there's a greater church too that they're referencing. Well, at that same time, I also started, and I forget how, I think I wrote it down here somewhere, but somehow I became wondering about this tribulation, pre-tribulational period. Now, in the Baptist culture, there this is dogma. I didn't realize this at the time, but you, my pastor, the one I was under, told me, Jeremy, if you change your mind on this universal church idea or you change your mind on the pre-tribulational rapture, we will never send you out. You will be considered a heretic. And that was pretty hard news to hear. So I went to my Bible and I started studying and I started trying to decide what what are the Bible truths about this? <clears throat> Turn to Matthew chapter 13. I'll share one verse with you during this time. By the way, I didn't mention it, but Becca, my daughter, was born during this time. So we had this trial going on in her life. She was born prematurely. Um, she was born... 16 days we were in the hospital, you know, in the ICU, tubes coming out, um, she couldn't breathe well. And during that time, she was in about an hour and a half drive away. So every day, I would have to drive up to this hospital to be with my girl and, and my wife and then go back to work each day, back and forth. And I was also going through this trial in my life of, of faith and is this right, what my pastor's teaching and what's going on? And there was harshness that was coming from him towards certain people and individuals. And I started studying my Bible, and I remember taking, uh, back then there was a website called sermonaudio.com. started downloading every view on the rapture, you know. I wanted to hear the pre-tribulational, I wanted to hear the mid-tribulation, I wanted to hear the post-tribulation. I downloaded every view, and on my little one-and-a-half-hour drive, I'd listen to every one. And, and I would pray, Lord, I need to know what's the truth about this. It seems silly because, you know, we're here in this church and it's funny when we study through the book of Revelation, every view comes out and everybody gets along. But uh, that wasn't the case there. Uh, Matthew 13. I think the final thing that convinced me were in these verses. Uh, verse 24. And it's Jesus' own words. He said, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a good man, which sowed good seed in the field. But while men slept, his enemies came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servant of the household came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares, or tares are weeds. And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, 
Will you go that we, uh, wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, no. Unless while you are gathering up the weeds, you root up also the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather together first the tares and bind them in the bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And if you jump down to verse 36, you'll notice it says that everybody went away. He sent the multitude away and the disciples came and they, he had just told all these parables. They said, tell us what the meaning of that tear parable is. They wanted to know that because they knew it was important. And Jesus went on and explained to them about how this is a, this was a parable about the end of the world and about judgment to come. And if you noticed, they were asking, should we tear up one without the other? And he said, leave them both to the harvest. So Jesus' words here were some of the earliest words that I remember studying and saying, why do we believe something that Jesus doesn't teach? And even in Matthew 25, um, it, you can see that uh, judgment came at the same time as when the Lord came and took out the elect. And so I was struggling even, uh, and I don't, I don't want to take too much time, but if you, if you ever could read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is talking to the church of Thessalonica and he's telling them, you know, you're going through trials, you're going through tribulation and the Lord is going to reward you and he's going to reward you at his coming, but don't believe this coming has come. And then in chapter two, he says this, but the wicked one will have to be revealed first whom the Lord will destroy with the brightness of his coming. All the context of the church was that the Lord would destroy this man, the wicked one, the, the Antichrist, with the brightness of his coming but he's telling the church to endure through that tribulation of this person until the Lord comes back. And so for me, after reading the scriptures and combing through them, I just could not see that there was a such thing as a pre-tribulational rapture, which, you know, left behind um, Tim LaHaye. These were all big names and powerful uh, doctrines that were believed in this church. And so I was struggling. My pastor told me that I couldn't, um, ever become a pastor. I remember I was in one of these meetings and, um, I had surrendered to become into the ministry. They, they, I don't remember exactly how it came, but I remember coming forward and kneeling down and saying, Lord, I will, I will serve you. I'll become a pastor. And, but then now my pastor was telling me, you can never become one if you hold to this doctrine. And I was tr- struggling with, but the Bible teaches this. And yet my denomination says that it would be considered heresy. We went through some really dark times. Um, we even had uh, a time in which um, a lot of the members wanted to remove this pastor. And so they asked me to come back. And it was, I mean, it was a really hard meeting. That pastor had a gavel and he was dismembering different ones of us right in the meeting and uh, got up and walked out. And the rest of us left behind said, you know, we need to go on with uh, our meeting. He walked with one, I think one family out and the rest of the members sat there, progressed to remove him. And several minutes later, the police walked in the door and um, asked us to leave, which was kind of shocking because the members there, I even, I was a signer on the building at the time. So it was like, you're asking us to leave our building. It was, it was a dark time. We, we um, called his pastor the next day and Baptists are really good with authority, with their pastors. And so we called his pastor and he um, talked to him and, and he did step down uh, eventually. And I've since talked to him 
and I'm sure I made a lot of mistakes. I was 23, <laughs> and I was foolish, and I didn't walk close to the Lord. You know, going back, I would say, man, I should have just, you know, shown the love of Christ and bared with things, but but um, that was a dark time. But the Lord really was waking me up. It's a precious time, too. The Lord tends to wake us up in trials. He tends to stir things when things are going hard. I was about 26 after that time, and Stephanie and I decided we should move to Washington. Um, Stephanie's dad lived there. He was a pastor. And I thought, well, maybe I could study under him. Maybe he could teach me how to become a pastor, and and I could just work with him alongside of him, and and we could go that route. So we moved there, and of course, I wanted to study with him my newfound doctrine about the rapture. So we did that for the first six months. We sat down and studied the rapture. And I helped him teach Sunday school and lead songs and whatever I could. Stephanie played the piano a lot, and 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 it was a good time. About that time, um, I think we had two children by that point, probably, Timothy and Rebecca. And I went to the park one day to take them to play. And, um, at, you know, we weren't dressing modestly. My Stephanie wasn't. She, on Sundays, Baptists would wear skirts and, and you know, like a, a dress with a blouse on a Sunday. But during the week, we would just wear normal pants and things like that. Um, well, I went to the park one day and took the boys, or Becca and Rebecca and T- Timothy, to the park to play. And up comes this woman who's dressed in some kind of dress. I don't know what it was. And I remember immediately thinking to myself, this lady's a Christian, and I think she homeschools her children. Sure enough, I struck up a conversation with her, and she was. She was a Christian, and she homeschooled her children. And I, I just remember coming away from that being baffled that dress communicated something. It communicated uh, something to me that this lady was a Christian. So I went home and I talked to Stephanie about it. I said, I think we need to start wearing, well, she does, not me, but I always say this in, like I'm joining it with her, but our lady, our girls should start wearing dresses. And so they, we transitioned into that. You'll see pictures of Becca when she's really young in little pants, and then pretty soon you see pictures of her in dresses. And that's because we were convicted about modesty and about what it communicates. That we live in a culture today that there is so much gender confusion. Uh, I heard the other day, somebody told me there's now 72 different genders. You know, now people think they're animals. You know, they have these uh, furries in schools and they can, oh, go to the bathroom in the corner and we won't do anything about it. And you're an animal. This is, this is what our society is turning into. And so in many ways, we wear dresses to show distinction between ladies and men. Um, and so that's what I was convicted about. At that same time, I started uh, sensing the Lord. In the end of Malachi, it talks about the Lord will turn the hearts of the father to the children and the hearts of the children to their father. And I started to feel the Lord pulling my heart towards my children. I read a book called Family Man, Family Leader and was influenced by... How many of you have heard of... Um, Doug Phillips. Doug Phillips. Um, what was the name of his ministry now? Vision Forum. Vision Forum. You ever, ever hear that name? Um, he put out a lot of books about men being fathers, you know, uh, turning your, the hearts towards your children, discipling them, and I was really convicted. I remember listening to this sermon. I remember even reading this book, Family Man, Family Leader, and towards the end of it, it, I don't know why I got this feeling that we should become Amish. I mean, like, 
like, I don't know in the book if it said this. I even was looking up Amish communities. Like, that would be neat. And, um, yeah. But the Lord turned my heart. And we even had a, you remember S.M. Davis? You all remember him? We had him come up to our church and we had a little family seminar. And he got up and preached and... um we were trying to become a family integrated church. My father-in-law was going along with that. So we quit Sunday school and started just all the family staying together and um, doing things together and really trying to turn uh, to be more family oriented. <clears throat> I had got a vision during that time to keep my business small work and keep working from home and just have time with my children to disciple them in the mornings and and spend time with them. One day, Stephanie came to me. Everybody can turn there. Turn to First Timothy. She came to me with this verse during this period of time. First Timothy chapter 2. It says this in First Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. It says, in like manner also... That women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. She came to me and she said, Jeremy, I was reading my Bible and I saw this verse and I don't know what it means. I don't know if it means we're not supposed to wear jewelry or not. Once again, I'm saying we're, but I don't know if it means I'm not supposed to be wearing jewelry. Well, that was hard because Stephanie really liked jewelry. <laughs> I, I like to give her jewelry. I like, you know, I, she had a nice diamond ring for our wedding. Um, she had really nice little earrings that I would give her and necklaces and little hearts, gold little hearts and just really pretty little things. Um, and she liked, I'm, you would say you liked your jewelry. Yeah. <laughs> and this was a cross for her. You know, what is the Bible teaching here? Also turn to first Peter. Chapter 3. So I began to study again. Lord, what does this mean? Does this mean we can't wear jewelry? Three, three. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on apparel. And then it goes on, but let it be. I think, you know, this just came to me, but one of the blessings of being raised Baptist is we take and we were taught to take everything literal. We didn't spiritualize things. Now, we did sometimes, but because of that tendency in me to want to take it literally, I started reading this. How how can we see this any other way? It says not to do these things. Now, some people would interpret this and say, well, that just means don't let your heart get into it. But I, I read it and said, no, it doesn't say that. One translation says, not merely with gold, but merely is not in the Greek. As I studied it out, it says not with gold. Um, some people say, well, you, it says you have to put on apparel there. So what are you saying? Don't wear clothes. Well, it says don't adorn with apparel. That means decorate. Don't decorate with your clothes. Don't decorate with your jewelry. And I started seeing this and I had to tell her, I think it means what you think it means, that we aren't to wear jewelry anymore. <clears throat> and so that was that was probably hard for her. One day I was leading songs uh, at this Baptist church and I was up here, you know, 
leading. And I remember everybody was standing. It was the end of the service. And I was looking at each person. And this thought went through my mind. How many people are actually thinking about what they're singing? And it kind of bothered me. Like this thought. that It was this thought that wouldn't go away. How many people are actually just thinking about what they're going to have for lunch today? You know, or what we're going to do afterwards? And it really convicted me. Like, what are we doing? There was a loft uh, where the sound room was. It was like on a second story and there was a hole and it could see out. And I remember I was up there one day and everybody was down in the service and I walked up to the sound room and I was looking down on everyone and I and I just got this view like I was God, you know, and I was looking down at all these worshipers in in this church building and and just thinking, are these people's hearts really for me? Are they really, you know, with me? Or is this just a religious service? And, you know, those are scary thoughts to start entertaining because it starts unraveling, you know, all of your fabric of who you are. Um, and it started to bother me. I would notice people would come on Sundays. They would be dressed up in their suits and their ties. We like to wear suits and ties. And, but there was just this fakeness. There was this, um, hey, brother, how's it going? You know, we might have just been fighting all the way you know, in the van, everybody put on your smiley face, get out, you know, hey, brother, how's it going? And shake each other's hand. And as soon as the meeting was over, have a great week. And, you know, everybody was out and it just felt like we came, we did our duty. We all shook each other's hand and put on this face. And then we went, we went back to our lives of living for ourselves and living in sin. My father-in-law left. I don't remember where he went, but he went on a trip and he asked me to preach the main service. And as I was studying, I don't know how this got here, but the word, I started studying the word church. What does this word even mean? And, oh man, it was like I was coming into a chasm all of a sudden and realizing this is so much bigger than what we think of it. You know, all these little terms, I'm going to church, or uh, how was church, or I'm going to stop by the church. All of a sudden, these became so not scriptural to me. As I read the Bible, I saw this word church meant people. And I know you guys are all smiling. You see... This is why it's important for me to tell you. See, this is my history. <laughs> this is who I am. And I, I, I realized we're two by fours and, and, and plywood in, in this church building. That's what we are. It's not this building. It, we can meet in the woods. We're, the, we're the, now the temple. There was a temple in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we're the temple people. And um, <laughs> I started telling my children they couldn't call it going to church anymore. It was done. They had to say, we're going, we're going to meet with the church. That was acceptable. Um, but no more, we're going to church. Because it wasn't scriptural in my mind. <laughs> you can see, I'm, I, 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 once I get onto something, it's like, whoo. But I got up that Sunday and I preached about the church. I wish I could find that sermon. That'd be neat to listen to. But I preached about the church. And this, this sermon was from my heart. You know, back when I was that preacher that was 23 and the pastor had left, I'll admit it, I'd listen to sermons during the week on the radio, and I'd like, I'd go look it up and re-listen to it and take notes the exact way the guy was preaching it and re-preach his sermon, even with his corny jokes and his laugh. It was fake. But I did. I needed to lead a church, and I didn't know how, so I'd go harvest people's sermons. Um, now, this sermon was from my heart. I really, really believed it. And um, I, I begged people, let's let's be the church, you know, let's stop t- 
talking about going to church and let's be it. It's not something you can go. It's kind of like the word family. Can you say, let's all go to family? How is family today? No, but I'm going to go spend time with my family, right? That's, it's the same thing. It's a people. And so I became very uh, convicted about this hypocrisy. It was all tied together, you know, dressing up the word church. It was all tied together with this hypocrisy. And then right about that time, somebody gave, as my father-in-law called it, the little red book. And this was a dangerous little book. It was called Pagan Christianity. It was a little book about this big red. And it explores all the roots of where our things, our traditions come from. Why do we sit in pews? Why do we have, you know, every church around the the continent has, you know, three hymns, announcements, uh, and then they have a sermon. And all of a sudden it was like, and this guy, he did have a bias. Dean Taylor even wrote an article on this guy. So you can go look it up. But he did have a bias. Um, but it really wrecked my worldview of Christianity. I started like, oh my, you know, pews and, you know, liturgy, liturgy and, um, I, I was going through so much at that time. As you can see, we're, we're just advancing through all the things the Lord's wrecking in my mind and bringing me to humility. And so, um, I remember one day this lady came in. She had, uh, she was a close friend. We were enjoying, I think she started coming when we started doing the family integration of the church. And she comes in and her whole face just is like one side just hanging down. And what's wrong with you? Oh, I just woke up like this and I think it's Bell's palsy. And I'm thinking, you know, let's stop the service. Let's have prayer. And no, we went on with our normal liturgy. And this was just, are we kidding? Like one of our members come in with this drooping face and we just go on. And so, um, so anyway, I was very convicted during this time of, of, of religiosity, of we gotta check the boxes no matter what. And I'm very thankful. I, I still remember the day Randy came in here, like a, a year or two ago, whenever it was you came, and it seemed like the church stopped and we, we, uh, just changed plans. And I'm thankful for that because that's, we need to be willing to follow the Spirit. You know, there's nothing wrong with doing things, um, in a liturgical style, but if we do it without following the spirit, we're, we're going to be, we're going to, we're going to have problems. And so anyway, during this time, I also was convicted by first Corinthians 14, which talks about open meetings. It talks about, Hey, you probably read the the Bible verse before it says, um, uh, it says, you know, each one of you hath a Psalm, hath a hymn, hath a doctrine, hath a revelation, hath a tongue, hath an interpretation, let all things be done decently in order. So we actually convinced my father-in-law to have an open meeting, open mic, the whole meeting. And, uh, and that's not normal in Baptist churches, let's just say. And so we had this meeting. He was very gracious. We had this meeting and it turns into a debate about unconditional eternal security. <laughs> it was like, okay, that didn't work. So, um, which launches me into that topic. So, and we talked about that a little bit this morning. During this time, I was also starting to struggle with this doctrine of unconditional eternal security. This is another cardinal uh, doctrine of the Baptist church. And, you know, you have to get into the mindset of how they think, uh, how I thought. And that is, you talked about lenses this morning. And 
we look through the lens of, for by grace are you saved through faith. And when we look through that lens, then we interpret everything else according to that root concept. And so, it says in that verse, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the concept is, if you can, if you can, if it doesn't take works to become saved, then does it take works to lose it? If you believe it doesn't take works to get it, then it shouldn't take works to lose it. And then that whole, uh, it's built up from that foundation. Problem is, is I was starting to see words of Jesus, you know, that didn't line up with this. You turn to John 15. I think we just read it this morning, but let's read it again. John 15. This was probably the most, you know, the nail in the coffin verse. There's many, many verses. By the way, if you want a great sermon on this subject, go look up David Cooper on Charity's website called Why I Don't Believe in Unconditional Eternal Security. Now, we don't believe in, we believe in eternal security. We just don't believe in unconditional. Um, so, look that up if you ever want a challenging message. He goes through verses after verse after verse. But, for the sake of time today, John 15, and let's look in verse 6. Now, he's talking about being a vine, and uh, we're the branches. Hang on, I'm in the wrong book. And abiding in him, if we're not abiding in him, he's going to... Well, we'll read that right here, verse 6. He says... Um, Let's go to verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. But then listen to this next verse. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is... What is the word? Now, let me ask you this. If a tree branch is in a tree and the branch gets taken off and the leaf withers, what does that mean the branch was doing before? What was the leaf before it withered? Abiding. Abiding. It was alive. I mean, for something to wither means it had to be alive. And it just seemed like the Lord said, very simply, a child could see this. This thing, this branch, had life. It withered, and then it says it was taken off to be burned. And I read lots of books. People were saying, oh, that's not burning in hell. That's burning in, you know, bad things happening in your life. And I thought, I am not willing to take Jesus Christ, who said these words, and, and play around with them. This is, not, this is not something to mess with. And so this verse um, very clearly says, they're gathered to be burned and cast in the fire. <clears throat> Let's look at a couple others that were instrumental. Mar, uh, what, you all know Matthew 6, the, where he's talking, teaching them how to pray, and he tells them, if you don't forgive men's sins. But also look at Matthew 18, verse 35. This is the parable Um, what do we call this parable? What's the term? The parable where the guy is, it, where he's like choking him by the neck and... The unforgiving, servant. unforgiving servant, thank you. 
the parable of the unforgiving servant. And he had been forgiven so much that the, he had for, the, the master had, he had so much debt owed and the master forgave him. And then this unforgiving servant goes, chokes his fellow man and says, pay me all that you have. And notice what it says as the wrap up for this parable. Verse 32, then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Should not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I have had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. Now listen to this verse. So likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto you if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. The parable is very clear. He was forgiven. He was forgiven everything. And, and this is where I might even struggle with the doctrine that says all the sins were paid. Um, I know he paid for us. I can find verses everywhere that says he paid for us. But he forgave our sins and he can unforgive our sins according to Jesus' own words. Even in, in the Lord's prayer, he says, if you do not forgive men's their sins, neither will your heavenly father forgive your sins. First Corinthians chapter nine. These are just some of the verses that convinced me. First Corinthians nine twenty seven. Paul himself is warning the Corinthians. And he's talking about fighting. He's saying, I fight. I, I, I beat like a boxer in the air. I'm fighting sin. I'm fighting my flesh. And then he says this so that he can obtain this crown. And then verse 27, he says, but I keep my body. And bring it to subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul somehow was motivated that he could fall away, that he could be considered a castaway from the Lord. Paul, the Apostle Paul, we would all agree, if he was unconditionally saved, he was really saved, right? We would all agree he was really saved, but yet he was concerned of being a castaway. I'll show you one more. I have a couple more. If any of you want to see some of these other verses or go listen to David Cooper's sermon just for the sake of time. Hebrews 10, verse 29. We'll come back to this again because this was very instrumental in my life. But um, but I at least want to show you the verses. And this was a period of time that the Lord was just revealing this to me. <clears throat> it's When you've been raised one way, it takes a lot of deprogramming. I remember being in Belize, there were some people who were raised that a flashlight was sin. And every time they would pick up that flashlight, it, it was a struggle in their heart. Is this sin or not? Um, so we have to sometimes really let the Lord reprogram us what is truly from him. Hebrews 10 and verse 29 says this. And this is talking about willful sin. And he says, of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall be done thought worthy who has what? Trodden under foot the Son of God 
and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith, what does it say? Anybody know? He was, past tense, sanctified. That means at one point in his life, he was sanctified. He is no longer sanctified because, because he has fallen into willful sin. In fact, look at the very end of the chapter. He says, now the just shall live by faith, verse 38, but if any man draw back or, or shrink back, my soul shall not have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. To draw back means you were engaged at one point, but I'm drawing back unto perdition, destruction. But then he goes on to say, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So as we were talking about this morning in our discussion, are you abiding in that faith? I think Brother Roger brought it out um, that we need to stay in faith. But if we draw back, we are, we're, we're, we're putting ourselves at risk. How many of you ever heard of Ray Comfort? Hell's Best Kept Secret. Same timing when I'm seeing all this truth. Oh, man, we watch Hell's Best Kept Secret. I was... It was Sunday morning. I was on my way to go to the church service and I somehow watched Hell's Best Kept Secret and I'm just, you know, what is the word? I'm, I'm reeling. Am I even a Christian? Am I even saved? And then there's another one he put out called um, True and False Converts. Oh man, I remember we, we watched it together as a group and we were all standing in the parking lot afterwards. I don't even think we're Christians. Like, the Lord was really, really stirring during this time. And he was, like I said, ripping out so many things. <clears throat> now this doctrine, this next one, you know, there's room. Just, just hear me out. <laughs> this is my walk. But, you know, if you, if you hold this doctrine true to your heart, then I'm not judging you. But I was raised in a King James only church. What that means is that we believe that there were no perfect translations but the King James translation. And, of course, you know, I'm questioning everything. My, somebody told me, you got to take all the furniture out of the room and then bring what's right back in. So I'm questioning everything. What is right? And so I'm looking at this doctrine, the King James-only doctrine, and my father-in-law was a very strong advocate of this doctrine. And, by the way, I'm reading the King James, so, you know, I, I can understand uh, that there are concerns in certain ways, but we'll save that for later. But we love the Bible. We love the Bible. Um, we really love the King James Bible. And some would even claim we worshipped it. And I wouldn't say there's a dan- there is a danger of that. Turn to John chapter 5. This is the, the verse the Lord woke me up with. <clears throat> and you, you know, if you want to become ESV only, the Lord should wake you up with this verse too. Um, so it's in John chapter 5. I don't know if I said that, but uh, right around verse 37. Now Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. You know, they were the ones that could interpret the law. They were the ones that could interpret the scriptures and Jesus says this to them. Um, verse 37. He's telling them, he says, The Father himself, which has sent me, hath borne witness of me. And then he says this statement to them. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. 
and you have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent, you believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. During this time, I was starting to see the word of God was more than the Bible. It was more than just ink on a page. It says the word of God is living. It's something that comes in and, and, and convicts our heart. Jesus himself is called the word of God. And sometimes we can boil this down that we can check off, you know, somehow we're, we feel good. But the Pharisees themselves, Jesus said to them, you have never heard his voice at any time. Neither does his word abide in you. They had the ink on the page. They knew how to interpret it. They, they, they might have been the only ones that knew how to read it. And yet they missed it altogether. And that was a concern for me that we can, you know, miss the word of God, the living word of God in our hearts. What he's saying, he uses this as the written word to become the living word in our hearts. And he uses it to convict us. His Holy Spirit speak to us. Jesus' own words speak to us. So I know you may be shocked. Some of you, you may be shocked. But we started reading the NIV. And we got lost reading the NIV. We realized, whoa, we're not even Christians reading Jesus' words in the NIV. Now, a lot of people, they want to say, you know, the NIV is terrible. And it might be in some places. But somehow we came to the conviction of these things, of following Jesus, of obeying him. I think if your heart is right, the Lord, I mean, he used donkeys, right? He can use anything. <clears throat> if you want to know God, he will lead you. <clears throat> and so I started studying about the King James only doctrine. And I came to believe that the King James translators were not King James only. They were, they were more like what I'm saying. I'll read you a couple of their, of their, if you ever want to do this, open the King James preface, read the preface, the thing they wrote to the King James translators. And this is what. 70 of them that, uh, or roughly, maybe it's 50 something, but who translated it into the language of their day. Now remember, the King James is about 500 years old and in language. And in their day, it was common. It was normal. In our day, it's not so much. And so sometimes we need a little help to understand things. This is what they said. Indeed, without translation into the vulgar tongue, and sorry, that word vulgar means um, poorest, most common. So I'll say it a different way. Without translation into uh, the the common tongue, the unlearned are but like children at Jacob's well, which is deep, without a bucket or something to draw with. You know, back in their day, when the King translators translated the Bible, everything was done in Latin. You know, their service, you'd just go and sit and listen to it all done in however they say those words in Latin, and they didn't understand. And so the whole reason Wycliffe came out with his Bible, Tyndale, King James was so that it could be in the farmer's dialect, in the common tongue, so he could understand. Listen, well, what else they say? They say the poorest translation, this, this rocked my mind, but this is what they said. The poorest translation of the Bible in English, set forth by men of our profession, containeth the word of God, nay, is the word of God. So whatever translations they had in their day, they said all of them still in their minds were the word of God. They said this, some would have no variety of senses to be set in the margin, 
lest the authority of the scripture for deciding of controversies by the show of uncertainty should somewhat be shaken. But we hold their judgment not to be sound in this point. In the original King James, they would reach a hard subject. They would put another translation of the word right here so that you could you could seek the Lord to see which one is it or maybe the Lord would use it in your heart. <clears throat> and then they go on to say, it's please God and divine providence here and there to scatter words and sentences of difficulty and doubtfulness, not in doctrinal points that concern salvation, but in matters of less moment, that fearfulness would would better beseem us than confidence. They, they were saying they weren't even sure on some places how to translate that word. So we should be careful not to dogmatize it when it could be one or the other. So, um, now in such a case, does not a margarine do well? That would be another translated word right here. To admonish the reader to seek further and not to conclude or dogmatize lost my place upon this or that preemptorily so to determine of such things that the spirit of god is left questionable can be no less than presumption they that are wise had rather have their judgment at liberty in differences of reading than to be captivated to one when it may be the other for the kingdom of god is it to become words or syllables why should we be in bondage to them if we may be free But we desire that the scriptures may speak like itself as in the language of Canaan, that it may be understood even of the very poorest. So just remember in all of this that people can come to the Lord even with translations that aren't as good. Maybe they're just not as well translated. Or maybe they do have a bias. But I'll remind you, we came under the conviction to wear jewelry. Stop wearing jewelry. To um, even to wear head coverings, we came to the conviction to obey Jesus. We're here today because of the conviction we read from the NIV. I know that's shocking, but it's truth. <laughs> we'll we'll branch into this a little bit and see how far we get. We have five minutes. <clears throat> At the same time, I was um, I struggle with dispensationalism. Here, I'll help wake you up. How many of you have ever seen a chart like this? This is dispensationalism. Uh, I mean, I'm, I am not joking. We went to a service uh, in Washington State when we moved there, and they pulled out a curtain across the front of the building all the way to the other side, and it was a chart like this. It was intense. It was really interesting preaching, too. I remember when it was over, I was thinking, man, that was only 45 minutes? That was fast. Um, it is interesting stuff. But, okay, so dispensationalism teaches. Uh, the root of it is it's a fundamental work to interpret the Bible. And so the root of it, if you see here, Darby was the guy who came up with these. In fact, there's a whole book with all these, all kinds of diagrams he came up with. But... There's different dispensations. Dispense, like you would dispense water out of a jug. So as you see, there's the dispensation here of Adam, of Noah, of Abraham. Um, some have three, all the way up to seven or eight dispensations. But at the end of the day, what this is teaching is, right here, the church age, the church period, some people call it the age of grace, is a special dispensation. 
And you think, well, of course it is, right? That's that's right. Well, the problem is, did you notice everything over here in Jesus' life is not included in that? You see that right there? I, I should have brought tape and put it up here. I want it to be close, but here, Caleb, hold this. Hold this side. Can you all see that? Okay. You notice right here? Jesus' life isn't included in the church age. So what this essentially is, at the end of the day, I'll, I'll take it, is what is also known, uh, Scott Jones wrote a whole article on this to his pastor called The Postponement Theory. And what it teaches is that Jesus came to offer a kingdom to his people, and he preached a lot of good things, uh, but they didn't accept it. He was trying to set up a physical kingdom on this earth. They didn't accept it, and so it's all been postponed till tribulational period. In fact, you'll notice one of the dispensations here is at the very end, the millennium. So dispensationalism um, is very popular when it comes to eschatology, which is the the, um, interpretation of end times. A lot of churches have accepted that. But there's also another form of dispensationalism that that affects ecclesiology, how God deals with the church. That's not as common, but was very common in the Baptist churches we were in. And so I was really struggling with this. Did Jesus mean what he said for us? You know, when Jesus says, don't resist an evil person, when he says, love your enemies, when he says, don't store up treasure, did he mean that for us? And I would talk to my Baptist pastors and friends, and they would say, no, that was not for us. That was for the Jews who were being offered a kingdom, and they didn't accept it. And... I remember sitting there and thinking, what sense does this make? Like, we call ourselves Christians, and we don't even follow its founder. Like, it's like, I'm a Muslim, but I don't follow, um, what's his name? Muhammad. That doesn't make any sense. We don't follow our own founder's teachings? God sends his, I remember laying in bed one night and, and t- saying to Stephanie, God sends his only son to show us the way and teach us, and we don't even follow his teachings. This doesn't make any sense to me. And so this launched me into what I consider the dark night of the soul, where by this point all my furniture is out there, and I have no furniture left. And uh, and I'm just... I'm sitting in the back of the church now. I've stepped down. I'm wearing jeans because, you know, if I wear anything dressed up, I'm a hypocrite. And so I'm wearing jeans and like a flannel shirt and I'm just sitting in the back with the sound system, you know, maybe turning a dial here or there. And I, I just feel like all my doctrine is just a mess. In fact, I was to the point where I was thinking to myself, maybe, maybe Jesus and Paul contradict each other. Maybe I should just tear out all of Paul's teachings. Do you know Jefferson? Thomas Jefferson did that. He had a Bible. The Jefferson Bible had none of Paul's teachings. I was considering it. I was I was like, this makes no sense. If they contradict each other, I'd rather come out at the end following Jesus than I would following Paul. That's just where I was. Now, there's more to the story. It's like, I'm going to cliffhang you and leave it there. <laughs> but anyway, I will say this because I need to close, that... This phase of my life was really a time where the fear of the Lord was coming upon me. And I, I, I'll get into it hopefully next week with this 
um, even that Hebrews verse and willful sin and realizing. And when I really believe, I became born again. But during this whole period, two, three years, the Lord was opening things and changing my, my outlook and taking stuff out of the room. And, and the fear of God was coming upon me. And then I'm going to enter into a phase of asceticism, trying to please the Lord in everything and trying, like, don't make one wrong move or he'll hit you over the head with a bat. And, and I was here during those years, so you probably remember some of those sermons. But, um, but the Lord has led me all the way. I, I really do believe. I do believe that he has, I can see his hand and how he has guided us and it's been slow moving, but I praise him for uh, the things he's taught us through all these trials. And um, yeah, the scriptures and Jesus are so much real to me than they ever were. And I praise him for that. So thank you for your attention. And I hope to finish next week and praise the Lord.